humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 151. I sat down with Erica Stone. She's a best-selling memoirist. Uh, she lives here in Nashville and her book, Gray, A Story of Loss, is available now on Amazon. And there are links to the book uh, and to Amazon, of course, uh, on heyhumanpodcast.com. Really easy to find it. So definitely check it out. Uh, her story is incredible. I don't want to give too much of it away here in this preamble. Really, I, I would rather you listen to it from her own words and her own perspective. Uh, we got together here in Nashville and over in Music Row in an office building. And she, I, I mean, whew. It was it was one of those conversations where I really had to work hard to not cry through the whole thing. Um, really incredible story. She goes back and forth to Sierra Leone. Uh, she's been doing so for quite a while now. And she's on a mission to help the orphan children there between war and disease. I mean, Ebola alone, uh, there are a lot of orphaned kids. A lot of, a lot of people have been been killed in Sierra Leone and, you know, in all the African countries. Um, anyway, so yeah, really, really intense, really incredible woman and, and her, she and her husband, um, and the whole family. I mean, it's just the way I, I can't wait for you to hear this, uh, conversation. It's, I'm really, I'm honored to be able to get, uh, Erica's story out and to help shine a light on, the situation going on in Sierra Leone. So uh, usual stuff, of course, I'm on all the social media. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, you can do that at, at Susan Ruthism. Uh, I'm my heyhumanpodcast.com website, of course, is a great way to reach out to me. You can just email me, Susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. Again, check out the links page for pertinent information regarding every episode that's on here. Uh, and if you shop Amazon, please go to the Amazon portal on the front page of the website, heyhumanpodcast.com, so that uh, you do your shopping that way. If you're already doing the Amazon thing, go through the portal. It helps support Hey Human and helps keep it ad-free, which I very much appreciate. All right, without further ado, let's get into this. Uh, thanks for listening, and here we go. Erica. Stone, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you. Thank I'm you. So glad you invited me. Absolutely, and uh, we are here in the lovely offices on Music Row yes. in Nashville. Yes. In the historic RCA building, mm-hmm. it's kind of exciting. You're a musician. I, yes. Yeah. Yes. A singer performer. Yeah, singer songwriter. Yeah. Yeah, and you've got so stuff I coming up time. early. I yeah, I do actually. Our second single off of a new record is coming out next week. That's exciting. Yeah, so a lot going on. Okay, mm-hmm. good, good. But that's not why we're here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nope. <laughs> we're here because Standard story. Line. Yes. Let's get a little background mm-hmm. first. Um, where do you hail from? Gosh. Okay. So originally Missouri. Oh, that's kind of okay. where I grew up. Yeah, most of my life. Uh-huh. Spent some time up in the New England area when I was younger, but for the most part, I was raised in Missouri. Okay. Moved to Nashville in 2003 and have been here ever since. So, well, yeah. Glad to have you. Yeah. <laughs> so where does our story begin? Sierra Leone, is that where it begins or does it begin even before that? Oh, goodness. Um, I feel like the story's so complex. There's so many layers. Um, I think the story starts with a photograph. Okay. So it started with 
um, a newspaper article when I was living in Missouri. So I lived in kind of the boot heel area, kind of in the middle of nowhere. My husband was a youth pastor at the time. So this was many years ago for us. And um, I was a stay-at-home mom. I had, we had been married just a few years. I was super young. I was about 21, 20, 21. And um, I was at home, staying home with my little guy, and I kind of came across a newspaper article about international adoption. Mm -hmm. I'd never heard of the concept. <laughs> no idea what it was at the time. And so I started getting on the internet and Googling and spending hours just researching what it was about. And I came across a website that had thousands of children listed by ID number and country. And so I started just clicking through them and trying to wrap my brain around the orphan crisis because that's kind of what I discovered. Um, was very frustrated with the fact that I didn't know that I didn't know that there was an orphan crisis in the world. Now, had there been adoption on the table anyway? No, never <coughs> even. Again, I had heard of adoption. I knew adoption was a possibility. I knew mm -hmm. it was a process, but I didn't knew know anyone that had ever adopted really. And your husband and you had not? Nope. No, no we never talked about it. It was never mm -hmm. in a conversation. So it literally started with just, I think, my eyes being opened through that newspaper article. Mm -hmm. And then as I started researching and realizing that there was an orphan crisis, I got very frustrated with the fact that I didn't, like I said, that I didn't know that we'd been raised in a church pretty much all life and didn't know that. That that was really appalling to me. Mm -hmm. Obviously, our eyes were on the wrong things, so that was a big wake-up call. Sure. And um, as I was filtering through all the kids, all the ID numbers, I started thinking to myself, hmm, internationally, I could do this. We could do this, you know? And so I start looking for a child that would fit the box in my brain. What was the box? The box at the time, I, it's, uh, yeah, it ended up being completely opposite. But the box at the time was I was thinking, oh, I, what about a little boy? Maybe around the same age as my son. They could be so great together. You know, like that kind of thing. Mm. Still didn't really know what I was getting into or what I was looking at. Just very naive. And these were children as that were orphaned because of war mm -hmm. and famines and all, all that kind of stuff in the world. Seas. Sure. Yeah, Guatemala, India, um, China, Russia, Africa, and, so, and more. And so I finally clicked on this ID that had a birth date that was mm -hmm. within the same year as my son. And when I clicked, it said boy, and it had an ID number. When I clicked on it, a little girl's face popped up. So she was misidentified and tagged. And she was the only photograph that where the child was smiling out of the hundreds I looked through that day. And there was just something about her. And I knew the moment I saw her that she was my daughter. I had never heard of Sierra Leone, which is the country she was living in. Never heard of it. So I'm grabbing a globe, you know, trying to find it on the map and started, you know, contacting the webmaster to figure out where this child was located and how I reach whoever had her. And what was the resource? What was this website? So this website was called, if I remember it correctly, I think it was called preciousinhissight.org. So it was, it had a religious foundation of trying to find homes for these kids? I guess. Yeah. It was I mean, kind of just a collection uh -huh. of children. Yeah, so people like would send them children, like different agencies. Makes sense. And they would post them. Yeah, okay. So it was like a big... Network. Network. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So I finally figured out who had her, where she was. Um, was that a hard process to find? It took to me a few get, days, yeah. yeah, to get a hold of the right people and find find out what I needed to know. And so then I, I found out where she was and um, sat my husband down and said, this this little girl, <laughs> gave him the picture. I'm like, okay, so <laughs> here you go. This This little girl is supposed to be ours. And he thought I was completely out of my mind and, you know, transparency is important. It was not an easy conversation. Um, he was not on board. Because? At all, at first. Um, we lived in a very, it was not culturally diverse. Very white neighborhood. You can say yeah, that. Very white. Very yeah. white neighborhood. Right. Um, very, very... Um, just not open to anything different. Sure. An it matter what like it was. an insular society yes. where you all, yeah. Wouldn't matter. Sure. And I think at the time we were so young. We're very different people today than we were then. But then we were very young and it was very important what people thought, unfortunately. And so we had some hard, hard conversations, but eventually he came around. Mm. And the next thing I know, you know, we we made like nine dollars an hour. <laughs> like we had no money. <laughs> we were practice. I mean, we were. It was really rough. Um, and I knew I had to come up with like, I think the first payment was like twelve grand. You know, to try to get this started. And we of course didn't have a dime. And so I started selling Krispy Kreme donuts. And uh, we drive to St. Louis, which was like three and a half hours away. And we load up a church van filled with like eight hundred dozen donuts. We drive them back to the town we lived in and we'd start selling them and Did raising the money. Did the townsfolk know what it was for? Yep, we put her picture up mm -hmm. and we got a good response and we were really surprised. And we kept, I just think people liked Krispy Kreme donuts because <laughs> at the time it was a new thing. It was newer yeah. back then and there was one nowhere near where we lived and so people were buying it up and we raised the money. But there's also a child involved. And do there's you, a child. Do you think that color makes a difference when it comes to children? You know, um, in that in that town, yes, it did. Really, we ended up leaving that town because okay. our church could not get on. The majority of the church couldn't get on board. With what was it. their argument for it? Against it. I so should I want to preface it by saying that there were several families in that church that did support us. Sure. But the overwhelming statements made that we knew we couldn't raise her in were statements like, "You know, you need to leave her with her people. Mm. Don't mm. bring her." Tribal it's too stuff. hard on yeah. her to come here. Sure. Um, or she needs to be in a family that looks like her. Mm -hmm. Isn't it better to just leave her where she is? Well, she was in a refugee camp before she... I mean, just people are just... Ignorance. Ignorance, yeah, yeah. of course. And so when we realized they were, you know, definitely not in the corner of, of being a support to her when she ever she got there, sure. we knew that... Um, it couldn't. It couldn't work. Did that um, test your faith in general? Knowing that you were in this, your your husband's a youth pastor. You're in this, mm -hmm. I would assume Christian esque town. Mm -hmm. Super, you know. And Jesus is all about refugees and loving thy mm -hmm. fellow person, especially if you don't look like me. Mm -hmm. How did that start to realign your faith and where you felt I in the lost mix? a lot of. I've, I've along, so throughout this entire journey, I've lost a lot of hope in humanity, especially the church. Mm. Um, I still struggle with it now. Mm -hmm. I'm still on a journey trying to figure all that out. But it definitely was um, heartbreaking because I was so passionate about it, passionate about her. 
because um, you're right, she was a real living, breathing child and it shouldn't have mattered, but for so many people it did. And I couldn't get my brain around it and that's why I wanted to run from that because I just couldn't stay in it. And so that did start a quest of really trying to figure out what I, I guess trying to separate myself from what I was raised in, um, who I was supposed to be, because at the time we were, we were pastors of that church. We had to somehow align ourselves and just got to the point we couldn't anymore. We couldn't, we couldn't stand for it. it. wasn't okay. Was that a bigger struggle for your husband, do you think? As the... It was at first. Yeah. It's not now. I mean, like I said, we're different people today. Of but course. at first it was yeah. very hard. Sure. It was very hard. Um, and when we decided to move... But it was still, she still hadn't come home because she ended up being a really difficult process. Um, we moved to Nashville with the hope that it would be better. a better place. Okay, so now you're trying to raise money with the, with mm-hmm. the donuts. Yep, raise money with the donuts. <laughs> so American. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> we, exactly. We sold everything we owned. We At one point we sold, like when I say everything, like bedroom sets, couches, loves, like anything we had that we didn't absolutely need. We were was, selling. Was your son old enough at that point he to was understand? About two. So not quite. No, there. no, yeah. he had no idea. Um, he did understand when she came home because it took four years to wow. get her out. And how much money? <sighs> Probably close to fifty thousand dollars. Now, was but, that both scrupulous and unscrupulous funds that so, were you have to pay off? So we ended up. By the time my daughter came home, we were more in debt than we'd ever been in our life. We owed. You know, we had a second mortgage on our house. So by the time she came home, we had moved to Nashville. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband had taken a position at a different church, and we moved here. And I was working full-time at the Tennessean. And um, we were just pouring as much money as we could, but we were just taking out loans on everything we could. And what happened was a few years into the process, we got told that we'd made it through court. And we were so excited. Finally, court in Sierra Leone. Court in Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. And we were going to get on a plane and book our tickets. And the U.S. Embassy called and told us that all of our paperwork was fraudulent. And That's so, what I was wondering. Yep. So yeah. we ended up losing all of that mm-hmm. and told that we'd never get her home. There was a trafficking scandal in the, com- in the country. And the U.S. Embassy, the consular, she said, I'm just so sorry. You just need to grieve this child and move on to a different country and try again somewhere else. I just could not. Had she been sold that. at that point? No, no, no. Oh, she okay. was there. All right. She was there. We just, the, the people that were running the adoption we're program not. just were processing fraudulent paperwork. So mm-hmm. she wasn't actually really adopted by us. Were you keeping so, in touch with her during this process? So, no. They wouldn't let you talk to her. They wouldn't let you communicate. Mm-hmm. Every so often you would get, like, pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd never met her in person. I'd never seen her, just had photographs. Um, and so when the embassy called and said, you know, you don't have an, a real adoption, you know, and all this is going down, I'm like, no, that's just not going to be okay. <laughs> so um, I started looking at flights. And this was the same time that we were at war with, I think it was right around the time Daniel Pearl, that journalist, was beheaded. And there was all this talk about, you know, Americans traveling abroad. It was, wasn't safe. And there were all these travel warnings for Sierra Leone because there was, there was rumor that, you know, Al-Qaeda was connected to Sierra Leone through the diamond trade and stuff like that. So we were told not to travel. And Historically, not a super safe place regardless. No, they had yeah. just come out of a, of a war. Yes. 
Um, I didn't care. <laughs> it's like I, I just was completely, like, like I said, very naive. And so I ended up using the last credit card we had and booked flights and went and told our parents that we were going to get on a plane. And again, my husband wasn't real on board at this time again to get on the airplane. He was kind of at that stage of let's let this go. It's been four years. You know, she's not home. We don't have a real adoption order. This maybe shouldn't be. Maybe this isn't supposed to be. Like that was his mindset at the time. And I'm like, oh, no, it is. It's supposed to be. It's just a, it's just a roadblock. <laughs> it doesn't change anything. Um, this is supposed to be, and I'm going to remove the roadblock, you know, whatever I have to do. And so we argued a bit about that, had a few dark days, and then finally he got back on board. And um, we got on an airplane and went over there and landed in the middle of chaos. You know, there were UN troops everywhere. I mean, I was... When I landed, I thought, what are we doing? Like, I, I, I had the moment of, Erica, you've lost your mind. Turn around, go back home. Um, but we pushed through. Eventually found her, found the orphanage, and there she was. She was real, a real little girl. And she, when she got up in my lap and kind of buried herself, I'm like, okay, this is, I'm not leaving without her, you know. And then, long story short, we did leave without her. We got denied in court over and over and over again. How long were you there while you were battling this? About three and a half weeks. We ran out of money and were told that we couldn't refile. We were angering judges and attorneys. and So I had to take her back to the orphanage. And it was a horrible place. Um, lots of, it was the worst place I've ever seen as far as where kids were being held. It was just at that time in my life. I've seen a lot worse since, but it was a rough space. And we had to take her back and leave her there, and that was probably the worst day of my life up to that point. And we came home, and I started researching law, trying to figure out where in the law I could find a hole that would give us the right to have her. This is, <clears throat> excuse me, where borders get very frustrating. Yeah. The fact that you can look at a planet and see lines yes. that say this person belongs here and this person belongs there. Exactly. Right. And that's how everyone, that that's what everyone acts from. I mean, everyone acts from that space and reacts it, from that space. I imagine to the, you know, to the powers that be in Sierra Leone, they're looking at this child as a money maker too. Oh, oh yeah. Well, and they didn't like me very much. <laughs> I wasn't well liked at the time. And there were very few Americans in country, so it was we stood out, it was an awkward, it was awkward. It was And you're blonde. Very blonde. I did <laughs> one point try to dye my hair dark to blend in, but I still didn't blend in very well. <laughs> so I tried everything. That was a different trip. But um that was later on down the road. But I um yeah, we we came home and and then through a lot of research and talk with other um, U.S. attorneys and things, I we found a loophole. We felt like we found a space in the law that would support us. Which was to go back and try again. Um, well, the reason we kept getting denied one was because there was a trafficking scandal, and they were afraid to they were afraid to let her leave the country for fear of what would happen to her. So there was that worrying that you might be human trafficking her. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. mm -hmm. Two, um, it was there was a six month residency in the law where they mm. wanted us to live there six months, which was impossible at the time. And so, but we found a section in the law that allowed for adoption abroad if a judge would see fit. So it kind of gave ju the judge um, a bit of space to act 
and what would be the best interest of a child. So outside of that six month residency. So I hung my hat on that and we started borrowing money because we had nothing again, nothing left. And uh, my husband went back over Thanksgiving that year, about a month after we returned, he went back and I stayed here. And we ended up going to court all in all 12, 12 or 13 times. And where's your son during all this? So he's with me <clears throat> at this point on this trip. And on the three week trip or the first he trip? He was with my mom. Okay. The first trip he stayed with my mom. And then on this trip, I stayed back because we couldn't afford to both go. So I sent him and he went and uh, had all kinds of crazy things happen to him. Um, trying to get there, missing flights, being bribed to earn a spot on the next flight um, from different African countries he kept getting stuck in. You know, it was just all like a big fiasco, but he finally got there and went to court and he got denied again. And the judge said, I'm gonna give you, or the chief justice said, we'll, we'll allow you to file one more time. And then we're not going to ever allow this case to go to court again, because you've just done this too many times. You think that that would show? You, well, you think. <laughs> So we, filed, we <laughs> filed it again, and we got the same judge that kept denying us, and he called me, and he's like, this is over. We're never going to get out of this. She's Your husband never, did? Yeah. yeah. And he was crying and upset, and this was like 3 in the morning here, and so I'm crying, and then about an hour goes by, and then all of a sudden the phone starts ringing, and he's screaming on the other end of the line, just bawling, crying. And he said, you won't believe this. We got our court order. And I'm like, What? And what had happened is right as they were getting ready to start the hearing, the clerk came in and, and moved, moved the case to a different judge. And this judge, this, this man walks in, Judge Hamilton was his name. And he walked in and he sat down and he just started writing the court order. And my husband was like, what are you, what are you doing? May I ask what's happening? And he said, well, I wish someone would have adopted me. Hmm. And he, he finished the order and he handed it to Jason. And he's like, um, you know, you need to, move quickly and get out of this country as fast as you can. And he said, she's all yours. And then within a matter of days, he had to go to another neighboring African country to get a visa, but eventually he got back to the States with her. And we said, we'd never go back to Sierra Leone ever again after that. Like we barely made it out that time. And we were going to just count that as the one miracle. And that would be the one we remembered forever. And, but then she started growing up in the house and I started remembering her mom, her birth mom, who was still in a refugee camp with a lot more kids that she couldn't take care of and just processing everything we'd seen on our trips over there. Just how is she adjusting? What, what's her name? Jada. Jada. So she's 19 now. And how is she adjusting to? She is... In the beginning. How did in she... the beginning, she was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> so... The it trauma was, that must have been. It was hard. There were a lot of days I thought, what have we done? Like, she struggled with lots of things, lots of hoarding food and hoarding anything. She'd never had anything. So she was almost six by this point, by the time we got her home. And she didn't speak much English. She was kind of like a little animal. She fought, fought, fought for everything. So she was very hard on my son. That was really hard on him. She was a fighter. She would beat him up all the time. <laughs> um, she was terrible in the school system. Trying to put her in a classroom was very difficult. She never, she didn't understand how to just 
she didn't understand how to do anything, really. She never used a fork. Um, there were so many things that she didn't understand. And uh, then, I, like I said, she had a very strong will. You would have to just survive as a child in a a place like that. Yes. And so she, there were many days she was crying and I was crying. Like there was a lot of crying going on for months on both sides. Um, And then eventually she just, one day it was like, it was, I don't, I don't know what really did it, but one day she just woke up and something just snapped. All of a sudden she was sitting in a classroom and all of a sudden she was, following directions and all of a sudden she was remembering the alphabet like she didn't remember it for a couple years she couldn't she had really hard like short-term memory things Mm. that would happen ptsd yeah just all kinds of stuff sure um and then one day again like i said she just something just turned to the point that the school was calling us in going did something happen like all of a sudden she's reading at a second grade level and last week how old is she at this point by this time she was in, she'd been home, let's see, when that all happened, about two years. So the first two years were Did she say to hard. you any kind of indication of why something shifted for her? Well, I kept trying to put my finger on it. And the only thing we could think of, the only big shift that we had was there was a point in time where we had done a, a call with birth relatives. And we'd wondered if it was that, if there was just something that snapped in her when she heard the voices of those in Sierra Leone, like if it was just something that connected for her. Um, But that was the only thing that had ever really changed, was just that that path opened up again. Um, I still don't know. I really don't. I still don't know what changed. But... Did you decide to take her back to see her mom? She went back in 2012. Oh, without you guys? No, she went with me. Oh, she went with you. She went with us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, after she got out out of the country, adoption shut down almost completely. And so we spent years trying to get it reopened and worked on the, uh, the adoption law and adoption process. And part of that was I brought her back because they had such a hang-up about child trafficking and thinking that adoption was the same thing. It was just ignorance. It might be in some cases, but... Right, in yeah. some, but in most it's not. Most, and, mm. and so we went back into the country and put lots of ads in the newspaper trying to teach them and just kind of engage conversation. And so some of those ads were pictures of Jada with her story and her talking about her life and what adoption meant. And then we took her back, and she went and met the judge that granted her order and went back to, like, the Ministry of Social Welfare and all the different government offices that were saying adoption was, was not good. And she helped shift the culture on it. Hmm. They were blown away by how she looked and how she'd grown and how healthy she was. Like, they kept saying, she's so healthy, she's so healthy. Yeah, <laughs> she is, you know. And so after she kind of had that big visit and she did get to see her her relatives that must have been very strange yeah we expected that it would be better than it was like I don't know what I thought it was going to be exactly I guess I thought there would be a lot more emotion towards her but what I realized is that and as I found over the years children there are some children that are born there out of love because they're wanted but most children and most pregnancies are, are burdens. 
a lot are, are product of rape, mm-hmm. obviously. Yep. The so soldiers. It's, and... it's all burden. It's sure. a burden. A child mm-hmm. is a burden unless they can take care of you. And so, Jada, what I realized is when the birth mom did get to meet her and they saw each other and there was smiles for a short time and then a big disconnect. Mom was ready to go, you know, like just not, not that engaging. And so I realized they're just, the connection was not what I expected. Do you think, excuse me, part of that might also be if the, if the tables were turned, if the if the roles were reversed and you were the mother there, it, it's got to be very strange to have a child then taken by, mm-hmm. you know, the white angel to come in and mm-hmm. whisk them away to a better life that as a mother, I imagine it's you want that for your child, mm-hmm. burden or not. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's got to chill to the bone to know that you couldn't provide. That's a nat- the most natural oh, of yeah. all human instincts yeah. was is to provide for one's <laughs> offspring. I think that um, it's one of the hardest parts of adoption. It's like adoption is beautiful and it's also terribly messy because of that. It's like a tragedy. Mm -hmm. It's like it's a beautiful thing, but it's also a great tragedy because there's so much loss inside of it. So while a child is is loved on one end and accepted and, and this beautiful thing happens with adoption, on the other end of it is this great tragedy. And it is a very emotional thing to be sitting in a courtroom with a birth mother. And number one, if you can't communicate. So if they don't even speak English and they can't read or write and you can't write them a note or you can't communicate without, it's, yeah, it's hard. It feels so awkward and uncomfortable. And there's so many things you just want to pour your heart out. And I can remember a couple instances where I was very emotional around her because I loved her mom so much. Like, as soon as I saw her and, like, saw how they looked just alike and and I saw the tragedy in it, I just wanted to hug her and hold her and, and tell her we were all in this together. And realizing that when I would cry, it would upset her. And she'd be like, like stop, stop, stop crying. Like, and I realized, oh, we're not on the same Culturally, wavelength. that's yeah, a totally different Yeah, this is never thing. going to, sure. she's never going to really know how much she matters to me and, and how I do see what she's done. I see that she just made the hardest and most difficult decision, but yet easy at the same time. I think there's layers to it. She, I mean, she had to, um, but yet so hard, like you said, because the instinct is to mother. But so it's, it's, it's interesting. It's has, also an interesting conversation with the child. Has she maintained her native language? No, she speaks a bit of Creole. I have, I now have six kids, so five are adopted, all from Sierra Leone, and they speak some, but not much. But actually, Sierra Leone is English speaking, so most of the family members and your relatives actually do speak English. It was just particularly Jada's mother did not at the time, but since the war, when so many people moved into the city, it actually gave them opportunity to hear English. So those that were living outside. Mm. Um, so it's changed a lot over there. It's a lot easier today in the city of Freetown than it was when I first arrived. And the ago. most ironic name in the world, right. by the way. Um, yeah. So as Jada is, how did she absorb that trip with her? birth mother and then with you and so interesting we've talked about it over the years so many times 
I thought she would be devastated by the meeting with her mom. You know, like it would spark a lot in her. That was not what did her in. She was like, hey, I, we look like each other. Cool. Nice to meet you. And she's how old at this point? Um, she was, let's see, that was in, she was 14. Mm. 12, 12, no, wait, 13 or 14. Um, so very, she'd been home a while, you know, went back. She was very American by this point, you know, but very, and a teenager, and a teenager <laughs> but she was just like super happy to see everyone, you know, hi, how are you? Nice to meet you. You know, wanted to hugging the grandma, hugging anyone else that showed up, the little half siblings that had been born since she had moved with us. And what broke her was the orphanage. I remember one particular night, she was doing so well. She was handling everything so well. And one particular night, I was downstairs in the guest house, and I could hear her up in the bedroom just sobbing. And she's not a crier. She's not super emotional in that way. And uh, I'm, I'm like run upstairs trying to figure out what was wrong, and she's in her bed with the mosquito net all tucked in around her, um, just sobbing. And I tried to ask her what was wrong, and she said, I just can't handle the fact that all those kids don't have moms and dads like I do. Like she just could not. It's survivor guilt. She's, oh yeah, she really struggled. And she said, we cannot leave. She's like, we can't go, mom. We have to stay here. You have to be their mom. And I'm like, okay, there's a hundred children in that center. We can't be everybody's mom. We got to find moms. Like she just, I think she realized her birth mom is a birth mom, but not her mom. And these, these kids, yeah, they the, the travesty to her wasn't that she had been adopted or taken away. It was that all these other kids didn't have anything and that she could have easily been there in that space. That is a lot for a teen child. A lot. Yeah. So her anyone, going home really. was hard. She, mm-hmm. she really struggled. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. I think all my kids have that survival guilt in a way. Where she has it for other children, my middle kids um, struggle with the fact that their birth mom struggles so much in that society. Um, so you have you have five and to- five adopted plus, plus, and my biological. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the ages of the five? So now let's see. Um, nineteen, you said. Is yep, she's almost Jada? twenty. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then I've got another nineteen-year-old, Nash, and then Maddox is eighteen. And then Capri turns 16 this next month. And then my little surprise adoption is Willa, and she's seven. So, How, how did this happen? <laughs> the surprise one? No, no. Oh, all of the kids. All the kids. And, and, and mm-hmm. where, at what point did your husband say, okay, I, I get it now? <laughs> all the rest were his idea. Okay. <laughs> so most all the rest were his idea. Um, well, after Jada came home, Remember at the beginning of this, we were talking about the church? Yes. Well, we were never the same after that trip to Africa. Multiple trips and the adoption. We just were not the same people. And we struggled going to church every Sunday in an environment where it was so... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the word self-centered because it is. Um, we were in churches where, well, we don't do things overseas. We only work in our community. And I, again, I have trouble with the borders. That's the border. That's the tribes. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not okay. It makes people feel quite safe mm-hmm. to be able to yeah. understand that, which is just, you yeah. know, they're right around them. Yeah, it's not, it's inappropriate. 
<laughs> just, it's, it's a definite it's, shame in that we shame. don't see each other as the human race. Yeah. 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 And so we were trying to figure out how do we, how do we impact everything we've seen? How do we, how do we function in this mindset of us versus them? Or us, and we don't even pay attention to them. You know, those kinds of mentalities. And so we ended up, my husband ended up leaving the church and got a job in engineering and went went corporate. Talk about a... Yep, totally left it. 180. Yep. And we decided that we were going to just raise money here and there, and we were going to rebuild houses and help people move out of the refugee camp. Because if we could get them out of the camp, then maybe they could keep their kids. Like we were trying to solve the, we're trying to solve the orphan crisis. Well, let's just help these families have housing and then that'll be enough. Um, and it's not, um, but we tried. And so when we went back on a trip to try to give some educational scholarships and to rebuild a home and check on this home we'd been working on, um, we got over there and we uncovered an exploitation ring. Explain what you mean by that. So we had a bunch of stuff to give, just food and snacks and toys and things, and we wanted to deliver them somewhere, and we'd heard about this orphanage that was up the road on the east side of town in a kind of a rough area. So we were told that we could go there and donate. And so we showed up, and when we got inside, there were probably close to 100 kids but they weren't like normal kids. Like when you'd walk in the gate, it was dead silence. Like most of the time, if you walk into a, a regular orphanage, like where the kids are handled with care, you're gonna hear them screaming and yelling and laughing, crying, and you know, you're gonna hear kids be kids. And this was not that. And there were 30 plus kids at the end of the day, once we got a good look around, that were severely malnourished. Several laying on mats close to death. Um, mm. like literally spines coming through the front of their chest. They're just like, there's just nothing left to them. The final stages of starvation, the sucking noises. Um, and I'd never seen this up close and personal before. I've heard about this, right? I've, I've been to Sierra Leone. I've, I've seen street children. I've seen the poverty, but I didn't, hadn't been up close and personal with, um, with that. And so as we started looking around, we could tell that there was abuse. We could tell that the kids were just in an unsafe place. But we didn't know yet this was an exploitation ring. We just thought it was an orphanage that had no means. Like, they just didn't have water. They didn't have food. Storehouse was dry. There was no rice. So our idea was, well, we'll start buying food and water and supplies, and we'll deliver it on a weekly basis, and we're going to start taking care of these kids. Oh, no, by the way, we're going to take these 30 and we're going to get to the hospital and we're going to cover medical and we're going to try to help get these kids back. Where were you finding funding for all this? I was making phone calls, just asking people to Donations. wire money. Mm -hmm. And with you, are your other children at this point or no? So, no. Your two children, they're at home. They're at home. Yep. So it's just my husband and me and a small team of friends that traveled with us. Just as a side note, mm -hmm. um, how is your son over the years coping with the fact that that's got to be weird even for him because here's my parents and I'm their child and then they're running off to get other children that require way more attention and time. That's a, that's a lot. How, how is he? That question's going to make me cry. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I'm sorry. Um, he's done well. 
but he's definitely paid a price. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. Yeah. He has a lot of anxiety. He struggles. He's quiet. <laughs> you know, he's kind of settled into the background. Mm. Um, and it's unfortunate, you know, and it's, it's, he, yeah, he used to joke that he wished he had been adopted from Italy <laughs> so he could have the same story. Um, and it's, it's sad to see that. He did travel once. He went on a trip and did amazing over there. Um, he has a passion for music. He's very creative. He's 20? He's 20. Yeah. yeah going to be 21 this year. Uh, but it's been hard. He defi definitely hasn't had it easy. He's had to give up his parents. And I've missed a lot of birthdays over the years doing the work in Sierra Leone. And I, I have always just tried to wrestle with that and make sure he understands that if there's one thing I teach him through it, it's that we all belong to each other and hope that he can carry that too someday and feel that same passion for people. And I think that he does, but he's been through a lot. Hmm. For sure. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so getting back to the the orphanage that you are now deciding yeah. to help. Yeah, so we started. And how are the administrators of the orphanage accepting that? Oh, yeah, very accepting. Mm -hmm. So we did that. We we started that, We and then we went home, and we were sending support every month. And then one day, the man that we're really close to there that was delivering everything called us very upset. And he said, you know they're selling everything he said nothing's there that I just dropped stuff off a couple days ago and I, I I came by unexpectedly it's all gone and so the and when he showed up there were children locked in rooms and and he saw the worst of the worst because he came unexpected mm. and so he was just very distraught and very upset and so that's when we realized okay they're holding them this way they're keeping them this sick so Westerners like us will donate but then they're taking everything we give and they're selling it on the streets and the kids aren't getting any of it so this caused a big shift for us. And we're like, okay, housing's great, but that doesn't solve the fact that kids are still very vulnerable. How did you deal with that when you found that out, though? Oh, I was... Did you storm the castle, oh, or what did you do? We were so upset. And my, my fix was, well, then I'm just going to open an orphanage, oh. my own, and I'm just going to go in there and tell all those people <laughs> what's happening. And I'm going to tell them to move all those kids to my orphanage. Like, that's how ridiculous I was. But that's what I did. We raised all this money, and we got on airplanes, and I pulled together a team of people. And long story short, we went over on a trip in 2009, and we got a building and hired staff and got registered. And... And then we started reporting everything that we had seen and collected and all the pictures we'd taken, all the proof of what was happening. And nobody would listen. Nobody would listen. And long story short, that place is still open. Um, we got a few of the kids. Um, there was one little girl that was there that was super malnourished that I was trying, we tried to adopt. Got all the way to court. And all of a sudden, they stopped showing up, and then we couldn't track her, and then they wouldn't give her to me, and all these things happened, which is what brought about the book that I just came out with, Gray. Um, but it's her story, but she ended up dying. While there. While there. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Um, she, so, this, the book is called Gray. Yeah, yeah. It's about Adama. So her name was Adama, and the story... 
she's definitely the foundation of the book and her story is woven through it and then just a lot of other things that I've learned while I was there. And, and she passed away at six years old? She, um, no, she, well, almost, yeah. She it was 2011. So, yeah, she was almost six. And, um... Did you get word that she had passed away, or were you with her? Well, what happened was, so in 2009 is when we were adopting her. And then it all had to halt, and I was kind of told I had a choice. I could adopt her, but I couldn't open the orphanage. It was all on the same trip. I was supposed to open the, our orphanage, and then I was supposed to go to court. And so all this was going as planned, and then the government offices kind of came down on me, and they said, you know, you're going to look like you're trafficking if you open this orphanage, and then you take a kid out of here. So you've got a decision to make. You can either open the orphanage, we'll grant your registration, or you can do the adoption. Well, I had a whole team on the ground, and I had to make that decision. And so I said, okay, um... I will move forward with the orphanage if you promise I can come back in 30 days. I said, promise. Well, that doesn't work ever work over there. And so then the next two years, they would not move her to my orphanage. And there started being this big scandal between us and this other center. And they would not release her. And no one would make them release her, even though I had had guardianship papers and I was ready for court and we had made all this process and progress with her. We were covering all of her care at the time. What did the powers that be do when you said, <laughs> look, children are dying and they're being exploited for financial gain for these so people? So the woman running that place, what I've come to just figure out over the years is that tribal ties Trump law. Bottom line. She has very strong tribal ties to people in the government and they will not cross her. So that's why I could never get Adama out. Um, and they started, you know, trying to get us to pay huge amounts of money. And I, I felt like at the time I couldn't, I don't know, I, I probably would do that today. <laughs> I think at the time I was, I was very scared of what I was doing in country and I, I didn't want to do the wrong thing. And I don't know, um, when you have a kid in the ground, you look back at it differently. I, I never in a million years thought something was going to happen to her. I just thought it was going to take a while, you know. We kept, we would get, we would get um, the ability and the clearance to go visit her. I just couldn't take her. So I would go visit her. So over that, that next two years, I would go to see her as much as I could. And then on, on one particular trip in 2011, I got on the ground and I'm all excited. I'm going to go get my clearance letter so I can go visit her. And that's when, when I was told that she had died. Um, and so then that just started a whole nother... I don't even know what, what to call it. I guess a whole nother journey. Did they tell you how she passed? Um, they said malaria, which I knew was probably not what caused her death. Because at the time, malaria meds were free for children under the age of five, as was medical care. But were they giving it to them? So what I ended up finding out was her neglect was so severe that by the time she got to the hospital, her brain had already hemorrhaged from her fever. So she was... I don't know that people realize that malaria kills more people worldwide than pretty much pile up all the other diseases. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you can't wait on it. <clears throat> if, you don't, if, you wait, if you wait on it, you're in trouble. 
But if you if you catch it, it's actually easily treatable in those countries. Sure. They have the right meds, whereas here it would be harder to treat here, which is crazy to think, but it actually is. It's easier there. Um, but distribution, education, right. all that stuff, yep. is, that's a huge deal. Yep. The Gates Foundation is working very hard on, yep. on that problem. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. continue. Sorry. Yeah, no, so that's... That's what ended up happening. So then I just kind of went on this quest. To, at first it was kind of hidden from me, so I had to kind of go on this quest of figuring out what happened to her and why and how and tracing you know, the doctors who had treated her and trying to find out where they'd buried her. And um, So I just found myself in this really weird spot. Here I am in another country looking for this child that was mine that I didn't do enough for, you know? Oh, I would argue on that, but okay. Well. <laughs> I understand where you're coming from, but. I felt like, and I still feel like there was more that should have been done. I, like I said, I'm different today than I was then. I didn't know then. If I'd known better then, what I, if I know, knew then what I know now, obviously. Sure. Right? That's Hindsight is twenty twenty. There's a yeah. <laughs> that's and, why and that expression know, exists. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And once we know better, we do better. So, so she passes away. Mm-hmm. Did you find where they had buried her? Yeah, it was um, on the side of a highway. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we made that count, and we made her. Um, we fought for a birth certificate. They they fought me on that. The government doesn't usually report children who are orphaned. They actually fall into a statistical category and they don't get death certificates. So I had to fight tooth and nail for that because I needed her to count in my, in my brain. Got that, um, got a grave, had it dug out and I know it all sounds very morbid, but no, it you know, made actually, sure there was stone and everything yeah. so she would never be there if you don't have a real, if you don't concrete in then they, they'll dig you up eventually and put someone else there. Like, that's just how things work over there. Sure. And when I knew that, I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> like, this is not how we, it's not going to happen for her. I think it sounds sacred. I don't think it so, sounds morbid. Yeah. So, so that you did, did that. that. Yeah. So go there every time we visit. And, but she was the catalyst mm. for moving beyond just advocacy, moving beyond an orphanage where we house children and actually becoming advocates for fighting for children's basic human rights deserve to be protected, not just within our walls, but throughout that entire country. And your orphanage is active to this day? Mm-hmm. We're almost 10 years old now. What is the name of the orphanage? Um, so the rainy season is the name of our organization. Can people donate? Oh, yeah, yeah. You How? go to therainingseason.org. The you can sponsor kids. Okay. Therainingseason.org. Yes. I'll put a link on Hey Human okay. Podcast so that yeah. people can find it easily. Yeah. yeah. So uh, how did we move from <clears throat> the first adoption into the next four? Well, we opened our orphanage. Or three. Wait. Yeah. Am I oh, yeah. Count? <laughs> well, the next three came home, and then the last one was the surprise. But, yeah, we opened the orphanage. So then we had all these trips, because that takes a lot of work, getting something 24-7 off the ground. It's not like building a well, where you can go dig a well and leave and start a project somewhere else. One thing I've learned is I jumped into, like, a forever project, you know. So it took a lot. Um, 
a lot, of, a lot of traveling. And when we were over there, I got to be part of a lot of different intakes for different children. And the first one, the first kid we fell in love with was Maddox. He was one of our first children. In the orphanage. Come to the center, yeah. And I was on his intake. And he wrecked me. He was like, let's see, how old was he at the time? Eight, maybe eight or nine years old. Super small, and he'd lost both of his parents, and he was living in a shack out behind someone's house. And there was something about his excitement when he heard he was going to the center to live. I thought he might be sad or kind of be scared, but he was like, let me go Let's get my do this. things. Yeah. <laughs> He's like grabbing his stuff. He wanted to change out of his school clothes into his good clothes. And it was a pair of pants that were so short. They looked like capri pants. They were way too small. He had this belt wrapped twice around his waist and his shoes had holes in them, but they were his best. Like he was so proud. <laughs> And he hopped up in the car with me and grabbed a hold of my hand and never looked back. And it was just something about his hopefulness it was so healing for me because it was right, it, that happened right after the orphanage opened and I had to take Adama back to that place. You know, she was still alive at this point and I was just broken from that. And I just wanted out of that place. I just wanted to go home. I was just so devastated. And then here's this little boy and he's in my lap and I'm like, oh, I really didn't ever want to love anybody again, but I really love him. Like, and I just kind of learned about the stretching of the heart. Like it stretches so much bigger than we think it can, you know? So I went That's home. That's because love is infinite. Right, it is, <laughs> it is. And it takes on so many forms. And so I knew I loved him and I, I didn't tell Jason about him right away because we were going through so much with Adama's adoption. It just seemed crazy to think about another kid, you know, in the middle of trying to get her. So I kept that hidden. And then he went over and he, he found him too. It was like he found him too and loved him. And then he called me one day and he's like, this little boy. And I'm like, I know. And then he said, but I've got this problem. I said, okay. He said, I found this little girl and she has this red dress and she is always holding my hand and I and he, he's crying on the phone. He's a very emotional guy now. He's like, I think I was supposed to be your dad. And I'm like, what's her name? And so he told me and I said, Jason, he, she has a brother. And he was real quiet and he's like, okay, it's fine. We'll just, we'll get all three. We'll adopt all three. And I'm like, well, we're still waiting on Adama's adoption. He's like, it doesn't matter. We'll just get all four. We'll get them all home. I'm like, oh, okay, you know. And so we started the process, but of course there was no process. So we had to work with the country and build one. And then adoptions finally reopened, but by this point, Adama had passed away. And three years had passed since the kids had come into this, our center, the kids we were going to adopt. So three, a little over three years, and finally they came home. And so then our whole family unit doubled and how did how did your son and daughter Jordan Jada yeah how did they it was a transition mm-hmm um, it was a transition those first few years were hard real hard um, but what is a miracle is today I my husband and I keep saying it like they all love each other so much like 
we have they are they are so well bonded you would think you wouldn't think that they none of them were raised as siblings like they've only had six years together they've been home six years so it's not much time especially when they're coming home as preteens there's so much baggage and trauma um but they're all so close you know you're asking me about jordan my biological son earlier he, yeah he's been through a lot but his best friends are his brothers mm-hmm. like they're best friends so i love that you know sure. so they came home and then my husband we're done we were like we're finished we have five kids we're going to help other people do this now <laughs> like we're going to teach other people this process and try to help as many kids find homes as we can the ones that should be adopted because there's that's a whole nother subject um there's there are kids there are that shouldn't kids, be <laughs> not that they shouldn't be but there are cases where sometimes there's more trauma in mm-hmm. moving them into a family mm-hmm. than there is keeping them in a really safe place in Sierra Leone with a the family there. So what, what's what I mean, we've launched an in-country adoption program mm. where we now teach Sierra Leonean families the heart and call to adoption and training, just like we do here. Sure, but that makes sense. they stay in Sierra Leone. A couple reasons for that. One, because red tape is red tape. And like right now, we have a, we're in the middle of an adoption shutdown. Um, with families stuck. Not fair, not good. But our government, um, you know, we're dealing with a lot of immigration stuff right now where our our walls are high or wanting to be. And so it makes immigration really difficult. So because of that, you've got to do something in the country that changes the future if you can't cross the border. And so we're doing that. And what we have found is there's some kids, the trauma is so severe, you've got to meet them where they are can't always move them you kind of have to dig deeper and plant the roots where they are and so that's kind of what I mean by that I understand but um the last one my 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 um husband went on another trip and took a team and he called me again crying and he's like there's this little baby girl (laughs) and I can't stop tucking her in at night and I'm getting to her crib in the morning and I'm like you, and she crazy. would be the youngest. Yeah, I'm like, you're crazy. Like, we have five. Like, and I and then I knew which baby I thought it was. And I'm like, I'm trying to find her a family. I've got her pictures, and I've been talking to people. And he's like, No, 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 no. You don't understand. So, the crazy part of this whole story and why she is now in our family was that I asked a friend that was there to get a hold of her birth certificate. I just wanted to know more about her because I couldn't remember because I have so many kids over there, I lose track. And so I got the birth certificate and, and Willa had been born the same week and time that Adama passed away. So on the day that I lost Adama, Willa lost her mom because Willa's mom died in childbirth. And when I saw those dates, the congruence and how they lined up, I could not deal like okay I just got a piece back and so and the crazy thing was all of our adoptions had taken so many years and Willa took five months from start to finish she was like this beautiful perfect space in my life that just all worked and then she came home and wrecked me because she wasn't potty trained and she (laughs) and I'm like I hadn't had a little one in forever and oh my god it was so hard but she was so beautiful and she is like the biggest light in our life like and so 
I, I heard it. I heard a um, quote once that says that grief is just love with no place to go. It's beautiful. And what I'm finding, I'm finding healing with Adama one through writing the book and being able to get the story out because I've carried it for too long. But two, I, my grief now has my it, the love now has a place to go in Willa. Like I'm finding some healing in Willa. I'm finding that that place again, the stretching. I keep learning that over and over again. And so, anyway, so now we're, we're definitely done now. <laughs> Knock on wood. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. But um, yeah, so that's how we ended up with all those kids. That's the long story. Wow, that's incredible, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. And from the beginning of it all to now, uh, Jason and, and you, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure you've gone through insane roller coaster stuff yeah how did you how did the fabric of the togetherness hold throughout the whole thing because I'm sure there were moments (laughs) oh gosh yeah I I, you know building the organization and building the center has definitely been the most trying I think that's been more trying than building the family Hmm. and I think it's because we go back to the way we fight a bit the way we were raised so we used to be in the church, and now we have this organization with all these donors that think they know how things should be done or that they have their opinions. or um, And so then you're trying, you want to make them happy because they're giving, and, and you're getting pulled in all these directions. And it's, again, this platform of doing what you feel is right, but also thinking you have to somehow pull people in. It's all compl- it's complicated. It's complicated doing a big thing that requires a lot of people in a village, you know, so it's, it's a lot of responsibility. And so I think probably the hardest thing we've dealt with is coming last, you know, like coming last with each other. Like, like I said earlier, I've spent a lot of months in country where I, we, I don't think we've had an anniversary together in the last four years. We, we've been, one of us has been in Africa every single year on our anniversary. Um, but it's like, it's the cost. And so I think that what saved us is that we've just both changed enough in the same direction. I think if either one of us had stayed who we were when we were 21, this would have never worked. But we've, we've tend, we've, we tend to grow together and change together. Um, and that's the only, the only thing that I think has helped us. Yeah, your story is remarkable. How uh, I'll put a link for your book, obviously, on Hey Human. Is it on Amazon? I yes. saw this morning. Yeah. 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 And it's called Gray. Is yes. that the traditional spelling or the English spelling? G-R-E or A-Y? G-R-A-Y. G-R-A-Y. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Erica, <laughs> uh, I wish you so much everything, all the good stuff. Thank you. Yeah? It's hard not to <laughs> get emotional. I know. I've been holding on for dear life to this whole conversation. <laughs> I know, me too. I'm like, I can't like cry on this. Like, oh, people I, cry on this oh show all gosh. the time. <laughs> you know, I think what I would want to leave it with is that, you know, right now I said we have a shutdown again where adoption is has been shut down on both sides and families are stuck and so it continues to go on. It's like no matter how hard you work, as l- I feel like humanity is just at the space of, there's just a lot of ugly and a lot of hard, and we have to keep doing it. 
I do believe that love will conquer yes. it all. I do. I think there is more good in the world than than mm-hmm. bad. I really mm-hmm. do. And it takes doing something. It does. It takes, love requires action. Yes. And and the understanding that these borders are invisible if we let them be, you know? I agree. And that your heart can stretch and you can do so much more and we have to do more. Because literally I'm, I'm looking at a situation that feels like the last 15 years we're starting over again. You know, like we've done all this work and now we're back at square one. But you're more cycle. empowered, though. More, oh, and so, way smarter. So you're gonna, <laughs> the, what you're Lots able to accomplish learned. from this point on will be, uh, will feed upon itself. Absolutely. Yeah. Lots of lessons learned. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all of this, yeah. Erica. This has been Thank you for incredible. Me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really appreciate you wanting to give it a voice. Absolutely. And thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please go to iTunes and rate and review this episode and any episode or the whole enchilada of episodes. Uh, It's really helpful and I appreciate it. All right. Have a wonderful, wonderful. Bye. Bye.